The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And before we get started, we wanted to tell you about an interview that we did on public radio, which we are so excited about. Hey there, All About Agatha fans. Mel Marie here to tell you that if you want more of Kemper and Catherine... Just tune into my show, Keynote, on Thursday, September 13th at 8 p.m. Central on 88.1 FM WUWF, listener-supported NPR for Florida's Great Northwest. Keynote is a weekly hour of genre-specific music. You'll hear some of the classics from punk's rich history alongside emerging artists inspired by those hits of the past. They come together under a lyrically-inspired theme to form a playlist that celebrates rock's many subgenres. And on September 13th, Our theme is none other than the queen of mystery herself, Agatha Christie. The episode will feature guest appearances by Kemper and Catherine peppered among an hour of Christie-inspired tracks. Join us as we celebrate Agatha Christie's birthday by going to wuwf.org and listening live to Keynote at 8 p.m. Central on September 13th. All right. Well, couldn't be more excited about that. You know, if you guys don't get enough of our voices in your cars, etc., once a week, you can have a you can have a little re-up. <laughs> Let's move on now to Tommy and Tuppence, our final story, two stories really, within the Partners in Crime collection. So that first story, which is the title of this episode, is The Ambassador's Boots. And then we will also be talking about the final story in the collection, The Man Who Was Number 16. But let's talk a little bit about the publication history, Catherine Brobeck. So um, this was first published in The the Sketch. sketch. Yay, I've come home. We've come home. And uh, maybe (laughs) for the – I think we still have some Poirots out there that we might be coming home to. But this was published in November of 1924, and it was – called The Matter of the Ambassador's Boots. And then The Man Who Was Number 16 was published the next month. And that's the last story that Christie ever published in the sketch. Oh, really? Yeah. So in December of 1924, she was done with the sketch. Wow, so that means that all of her sketch pieces were between 1920-21 slash and 1924, since obviously Styles was in 1920. And then she started publishing short stories right after that, I suppose. That's a lot. I'm sure our friend John Curran could say more about this, but here would be my suspicion is that her her fees for the novels weren't doing it, right? So she was probably making way more money writing a ton of short stories for the sketch. And to also serial rights for the novels in, I think, often the same newspapers in which she was also publishing these short stories where she was making nice little sums. Right. Yeah. So I think yeah. that what you have here, and if you look at it, I mean, some of these come out twice a month. I mean, she was probably making a really decent income for, you know, a female yeah. writer in the early 1920s by just writing continually 
all of these short stories. That's why there are so many of them. And I think that that's why they're so front loaded because obviously the more successful she became, she didn't have to rely on the short stories for income, right? That, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. She actually has a charming anecdote in her autobiography about how maybe I'm making it up, but she, she would know that like, say she had like a gardening plan that would cost 40 pounds. Mm -hmm. She'd be like, Oh, I'll just write a short story and I'll get 40 pounds from that. And that'll pay for my gardening project done. And she'd write, you know, write one right off a of Poirot or a Tommy and Tuppence in like an hour and, you know, pay for, pay for whatever she needed. I, just, you, I love that. You know what? I've definitely done freelance stuff like that in the past. Yeah. It is interesting how front loaded the short stories are. That is something else that I didn't appreciate until doing this podcast project because we tried in the beginning to cover short stories that were around the same time period as the novels we were covering, but we quickly realized that was going to be impossible given the fact that we do two to three short stories between novels since there are just so many from this early period. So it doesn't really matter, but I didn't realize how few, relatively few short stories she she wrote in the 40s, 50s, and certainly 60s compared to the 20s and 30s. The more you know. And so then the collection, so we'll just finish up the publication history here. Of course, it's published in Partners in Crime in 1929, and it's the last two chapters of the book. And it's the last time we see Tommy and Tuppence before NRM. This is our last viewing of young Tommy and Tuppence, as you pointed out on an earlier episode, Catherine. So let's savor it for a while it lasts. And, uh... Talk about this ambassador and his boots. Who is our victim here? Who is he, Kepper? Well, he is, not surprisingly, the U.S. ambassador, Mm. Randolph Wilman. Does he have an interesting name? (laughs) He, you know what? For Christie, this is restrained. (laughs) I'd I'd say Randolph Wilmot is, I'm, I'm okay with it. (laughs) So, yeah, he is the U.S. ambassador to Britain. You'd think that maybe he was traveling with something sensitive, that this would be some sort of espionage story or something like that. And perhaps it will turn out to be. But initially, it seems that he was just traveling with a kit bag that had a lot of boots in it. (laughs) And that, that that kit bag was recently exchanged in a case of an accidental switcheroo on a transatlantic voyage. Right. Two very nice boot kit bags that had similar RW initials on them. So who are our suspects, Catherine? We have Richards, who's uh, Wilmot's valet, who handled the luggage exchange. Wilmot himself does not seem to find Richard suspicious, but, you know, we don't know. He certainly had the opportunity. He did. And then we have Eileen O'Hara, a dark-haired, exotic Irish lady who fainted in Wilmot's cabin and also seems to have had the opportunity since she was left alone in that cabin for quite some time. So, what is the world as it appears to be? It's a little complicated, (laughs) as sometimes it is in Tommy Tuppets. This is, if you're not picking up on it, a little bit more of a thriller-ish story. It has one clue, Yeah, I think it has one clue. We love Tommy and Tuppence, and we try to make the distinction between the old-fashioned-y Perils of Pauline kind of thrillers and the mystery stories. And I think that going into this, we assumed this was a mystery story, and it, it sort of is. It sort of is, but barely. 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 Yeah. So, yeah. so that said, Ambassador <laughs> Randolph Wilmot 
goes to the Blunt Agency because he's too embarrassed to bring the matter to Scotland Yard or his own embassy. Why would that be, Kemper? So here's what's bothering him. He was on this transatlantic voyage, and when he arrived in England, his valet realized that somehow he did not have his kit bag anymore, that there must have been an accidental switch that happened with someone else's kit bag who had the same initials of RW. And luckily, someone comes to the embassy and says, oh, oops, yes, I work for Senator Westerham, whose first name begins with an R. He was on the same voyage, so somehow the bags got confused. Here is your bag. Here is the Ambassador Randolph Wilmot's bag. You give me back the senator's bag, and now we're all squared. And the valet takes back the bag, and it is indeed the ambassador's bag. So the ambassador is not missing his bag. He has his bag. It's just that he was informed that there had been this swisheroo that happened. So the ambassador happens to run into Senator Westerham, and he mentions the matter, like, hey, wasn't that a funny thing how our bags got switched? And what the ambassador tells Tommy and Tuppence is that, to my great surprise, he did not seem to know what I was talking about. And when I explained, he denied the story absolutely. He had not taken my bag off the ship in mistake for his own. In fact, he had not traveled with such an article amongst his luggage. And it just makes no sense. As the ambassador says, there seems no rhyme or reason in it. This business gets my goat. That's what he says. Since, of course, the other thing Americans often have to do in Christie stories is... Use it, weird idioms. Use Yeah, use outlandish idioms in addition to having <laughs> outlandish names. <laughs> so it's just bothering him. And he wants an answer as to what really happened. Right. There's really no evidence to go on. They don't know the other valet's name. The senator doesn't know what happened. The only witness really is Richards, who was sort of in charge of the exchange of the bags. And Richards really doesn't know of anything suspicious when Tommy and Tuppence are sent to go interview him, quiz him. All he can confirm is, yeah, it was a bag filled with the ambassador's boots. Right, so Mr. Wilmot's bag was exactly as it should have been. It was full of boots. And then they ask Richards if he happened to get a glimpse at the other bag before it was exchanged. And he says, as a matter of fact, sir, I was just opening it at the very moment Senator Westerham's man arrived. I just undone the straps. And Tommy asks, did you open it at all? And he says, we just unfastened it together, sir, to be sure no mistake had been made this time. The man said it was all right, and he strapped it up again and took it away. What was inside? Boots also? No, sir, mostly toilet things, I fancy. I know I saw a tin of bath salts. And then Tommy abandons that line of research because to them, there's nothing more boring than bath salts in a kit bag. But not so much to us. Well, I think bath salts, I think those people that eat bath salts and essentially turn into zomb- like real-life zombies. I know. That's <laughs> exactly... like eating people's faces and stuff. They're often oblivious to the risks they take, climbing barefoot under a high bridge, rolling around, literally rolling around in traffic on a busy street. The drug makes the heartbeat accelerate so high, the internal body temperature sizzles, so stripping seems like the best way to cool off. Who knows what inner impulse then makes somebody want to jump between cars? 
The inaptly named drug bath salts is suspected of being behind all of these strange and scary incidents. I know, I just, I can't ever hear the phrase bath salts without thinking about that incident on that bridge in Florida. In fact, when the police official originally told him to stop eating the victim's face, he looked up at the officer and growled. Okay, so he was that high that he was acting in that manner. Anyway, as you mentioned, he got shot. That's not a reference uh, Christy was counting on, I think, (laughs) when she put (laughs) bath salts in here. The problem with this story is if you're reading it in 2018, you read that on the first few pages and you think, oh, they're smuggling drugs. Yeah, you're like, oh, these are drug smugglers. And you know what? You'd be right. (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler, you would be right. But it's it's not intentional because obviously in, in 1924, there weren't rampaging bath salt high pseudo cannibals. That's supposed to be an entirely innocent reference there. It's like saying ivory soap or shampoo. What else does Richard say happened that might be of interest? Well, there's a young woman. She's named Eileen O'Hara. No relation to Scarlett. She apparently fainted outside the ambassador's room and then uh, Richards brought her inside to rest while he went to go get help. And one of the things that Tommy and Tuppence say is, well, Eileen O'Hara seems like a fake name. It's too Irish. It's trying a little too hard. So Tommy just decides to put an advert in the paper for this Eileen O'Hara or her whereabouts. This seems like potentially a bad idea. Like you, mm-hmm. there's a suspicious woman who might have been up to no good in a nefarious but unexplained way. So let's just take a newspaper ad out and say, anyone who has any info on her, come on over to this address where we are sitting. Waiting for you. Waiting for you. Right. Um, so when Tuppence is out of the office... A young blonde named Miss Cecily March shows up, and we will get there by the end of the story, but we do learn that she is not a natural blonde. But she is noted to be a comely lass, I believe. Yeah, very very comely, and even if Tommy is a little wary... Yeah, Tommy had just time to see that she was fair-haired and extremely pretty when the amazing occurrence happened. What happened, Catherine? Well... A gentleman barges in and threatens to kill them all. With a gun. Yeah. I have to say, I'm usually scolding the adaptation series with Francesca Ennis and James Warwick for inserting silly scenes in which they're held at gunpoint. But here we go. It is in the original. Yeah. And it's he's like a raving lunatic. You know, he knows about the advert. This goes on for a minute until... <laughs> Albert. We all remember Albert, right? Oh, yeah. Their faithful assistant. (laughs) Their faithful assistant. What does Albert do to just really ramp this up a little bit, Kemper? So Albert, instead of going to to the police, as a sensible person would do when he sees that his boss and their young guest are being held at gunpoint, grabs a rope and Mm -hmm. tries to lasso the man holding the gun. Oh, um, I'm sorry. He doesn't try to lasso him. Please, please give credit where credit is due. He lassos him, but he does it in such a way that the man shoots his gun off in Tommy's direction and barely misses. I know. He can feel the heat heat of it on his ear. Yeah. Tommy felt the bullet scorch his ear in passing ere it buried itself in the plaster behind him. I've got him, sir, cried Albert, flushed with triumph. I have to tell you, Kemper, I think that I speak for all of our listeners 
when I say that we could all use more of your dramatic readings okay. because, you know, you're going to get it. <laughs> I happy, happy to do so. You, you missed your calling as a grand thespian. <laughs> Albert mentions that he's been practicing with a lasso in his spare time. And Tommy immediately, quote, mentally determines that Albert should have no further spare time. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, and then they just let him go i mean they, they kick him well, down the Tommy stairs right literally kicks him down the stairs not just like they take the lasso off and then tommy physically kicks the man down the stairs and then they still don't call the police yeah at this point the lady who came in is then able to better explain what exactly brought her there. Can I just say, after that had happened, after you'd been held at gunpoint, watched a man be lassoed, had a gun go off, watched that man be physically kicked down the stairs, assume he was still probably at the bottom of the stairs, I I don't know that you would really be in a position to better explain what happened. It's true. Well, and that ends up being a bit of a clue. A clue, yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll get there, but that, that is the one clue. So what does Cecily tell Tommy? So she was a passenger on this same ship, and she had come to know Eileen O'Hara and known her enough so that when she was walking by, conveniently, the ambassador's room, she saw that Eileen was cutting a slit into one of the ambassador's boots and shoving something in. Mm-hmm. And so overcome with curiosity, Cecily goes back to the room later, opens the same bag, pulls out the boot, removes the paper, and then finds out that it was, quote unquote, nothing but some verses from the Bible. I don't know about you, but it made me think of in and out <laughs> <laughs> What? They print Bible verses on all of their wrappers and cups. Uh, on the bottoms of it. Yeah. Verses from the Bible, says Tommy, very much intrigued. At least I thought so at the time. I couldn't understand it. But I thought perhaps it was the work of a religious maniac. Or just, you know, an in-and-out devotee. (laughs) So Cecily thought maybe it was a religious fanatic, but she also didn't feel it was worthwhile replacing, because apparently she's not a religious fanatic. And she kept it without thinking much about it until, according to her, yesterday. That's coincidental. The day before she is relating all of this to Tommy, she says that she used it to make into a boat for her little nephew to sail in his bath. And of course, the paper got wet. And as when she saw a, quote, queer kind of design coming out all over it. And she took it out of the bath, she smoothed it out, and there was some sort of a hidden message, basically a a kind of tracing that looked like the mouth of a harbor. So again, Goonies level um, (laughs) map drawing here of something or other. Then she just happened right after that to read the advertisement that Tommy put in the paper. Hmm. How fortunate. Tuppence comes back. Tommy, at this point, she's not there. Tommy scrawls a note and then runs out with Cecily because they have to go. That note, it is a matter of national security, and she has apparently hidden it in her safe in her beauty parlor where she works on Bond Street. And so they need to go to Scotland Yard immediately because Zutalor espionage right (laughs) they have to do something about this and tuppence is kind of just like okay as she's walking up the stairs doesn't really pay them that much attention 
And then when they get out onto the street, they have to take like a winding route because Tommy sees a cab and it's lingering and clearly they're being watched. So they stop so, for coffee, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, they do. Yeah, it seems like he's being very solicitous about Cecily March's safety, and he thinks she's in great danger. She's in great so, danger. Yeah, yeah, they're taking their sweet time, and they passed Tuppence on the stairs, but Tommy did leave her a note before he left the office. That turns out to be important. We'll get, get there mm-hmm. in a second. So they do mm-hmm. eventually reach Bond Street, and this little beauty parlor and the place is actually pretty packed it's like a busy Mm -hmm. day at the at the beauty parlor there are a bunch of men who you know one would assume men need their mani patties too so men need their mani patties too although the assumption in third person narration is here sat two men apparently bored husbands waiting for their wives do you know how victoria's secret has copious seating for men like that at least is the idea it's, it's that sort of a thing. Like, oh, the men have to wait for the women folk to do all their shopping because you know how the ladies love to shop. Elbow, elbow. <laughs> I mean, I feel like this is a little retro because it's so much online now that this is a little bit of a throwback. Not completely. I'm overstating it a bit. But I think it was a more common occurrence to see scads of people waiting around for whoever they were with to finish up their shopping IRL. Yeah, flashback to 1998. Um, <laughs> going to... Uh, uh, you know, <laughs> the age of the mall. Yeah. So um, lots of people. And there's this small, dark woman whose back is to them. And she's speaking in slow, difficult English. And Cicely March passes straight on through a door at the end, which she holds for Tommy to follow her. And just as he does, that small, dark woman customer exclaims, ah, but I think that is an amico of mine. And she rushes after them and inserts her foot in the door just in time to prevent its closing. And then those two men, the bored husbands, rise to their feet. And one of them falls through the door. The other advances to the shop attendant and claps his hand over her mouth to drown the screaming that's rising to her lips. And then Tommy has a cloth flung over his head with a sickly odor assailing his nostrils. But then the cloth is jerked off again. And then there's another woman's scream that rings out. Catherine, what is happening? Because we are now in the world as it actually is. And it's gone crazy. The world as it actually is is a scene on a weekday in 1997 at a Victoria's Secret in a shopping mall in (laughs) suburban America. (laughs) Just with a little bit more chloroform. Not that much more, but just a little bit more. Just just slightly more. (laughs) Tommy was legitimately attacked. The man that he kicked down the stairs is one of those men who is waiting. Which is maybe why he should have called the police and had him arrested. (laughs) (laughs) Generally a good idea. If somebody has already tried to kill you with a gun, maybe you report that. Maybe, yeah. Tommy, as we've said before, Tommy, not always the brightest bulb. So he's not quite chloroformed. And it turns out that the other people in that parlor uh, waiting room are none other than Tuppence who has managed to get there because Tommy took his sweet time leading Miss Cecily March around London and Scotland Yard. I really wonder what was on that note that Tommy left. I know. It seems like he had to have put a lot of information in that note in a very short amount of time. (laughs) Right. Like, it seems like he had to have written a veritable essay on what had happened. (laughs) But... 
you know. <laughs> Maybe he uh, took a course in shorthand. Possibly. Also, though, we know that Tuppence is actually very intuitive about things. So This is true. To be fair, I think the true sort of Christie-esque sleight of hand that's going on in the, in the storytelling here is that we're confronted with a switcheroo <laughs> and we're asked to answer the question as readers, okay, why did someone apparently want the ambassador's kit bag for a relatively short period of time and then just return it seemingly not altered. Why is that? That doesn't make sense. And the answer is you have to look at it the other way around, which is so often the answer in Christie where you have to change the angle at which you're looking at the problem. Mm -hmm. The issue was that... You know what? It's actually really clever. It is clever because the issue is that it was the other bag. It was the kit bag that was in the ambassador's possession for that period of time when the ambassador didn't have the ambassador's bag because ambassadors don't have to go through customs. That's one of the perks of of being an ambassador. So that's why Tommy immediately thinks of smuggling and something that can't be too bulky, which leads him to guessing that it's drugs. And then the mention of bath salts being in tins that obviously you can just sort of put a layer of bath salts over what you really want in there. Similar to putting a layer of potatoes in a tin that you bury in the ground, uh, perhaps. Oh, man. Tommy and Tuppence. (laughs) <laughs> Tommy and Tuppence. I'm just I'm build I'm bu- I'm trying to build here on uh, all that we've learned in the Partners in yeah, Crime well, series. I know, I know. But what we what we learn in this is that if you want to smuggle a ton of cocaine into Britain, just smuggle it in and sprinkle some like pretty fancy bath crystals on top of it and sneak it into an ambassador's luggage. That's all. Apparently, the bath salts are, of course cocaine covered in bath salts. The ambassador's bag was swapped because it wouldn't be checked by customs. And then after surviving customs, the bag got switched back and the cocaine could then be distributed. This beauty parlor apparently is a major distribution center in the the drug trade in London. Do you know that that makes sense? That makes sense somehow. Oh yeah. No, that, that makes sense to me too. The only thing that I will mention before we briefly touch on the adaptation is that mm-hmm. we always have to mention the detective and mystery author referenced within each of these stories. And now that right. I know that a lot, that these references were often added after the fact between the original serialized version and when the story was collected right. within Partners in Crime, you can really see it because the references are only made at the very beginning <laughs> and very end of this story. There's this reference to Tuppence playing Reginald Fortune. I am the famous Dr. Fortune, and you are Superintendent Bell. And then Tommy asks, why are you being Reginald Fortune? And she says, well, really, because I feel like a lot of hot butter. Because apparently Reggie Fortune, the detective, ate a lot of hot buttered muffins, which are then also referenced at the very (laughs) end of the story. They're the final line of the story. (laughs) Yeah, that's the final line of the story. The reference is to H.C. Bailey, who was another English author of detective fiction, and I would say one that we certainly don't know as well as... As Christie and others from the Golden Age. He mainly wrote short stories, and his detective was Reggie Fortune, who was a medical man. He was a doctor. Fortune was a little like Lord Peter Whimsy-esque, so he was, I guess right. you could say, a bit of a fop or a gentleman. Apparently, these stories were a lot darker though, uh, than the Dorothy Sayers, Lord Peter Whimsy stories. The name Reggie Fortune is actually not 
entirely unknown to me. It rang a bell when I read it, but I don't know if I've ever actually read any of these stories. And so I I certainly cannot say that I'm a fan. H.C. Bailey, Reginald Fortune. There we go. Hot buttery muffins. Hot buttered muffins. There you go. Let's touch briefly on the adaptation. Our friends Francesca Annis and James Warwick. This is the last time we will be speaking about them. Which is kind of sad because they are a delight. They are. They are. I have to say, this story opens up at, I think, the most lavish set I've seen in the entire series at a a garden party. So we get outdoor filming, which is always a surprise in that series because it looks so different. It's it's shot on such a different film than the... Oh, um, what? You're saying that they didn't make it with plywood cutouts and... (laughs) Well, no, it's just the quality of the film is different. Mark Aldrich, actually, Mark talks about this in his book, how jarring it is because when they go from inside to outside, it looks like you're watching a different program. It's like a different quality to the film, but... It's, it's like a much less clear and it looks more filmic. Whereas when you're inside, you're so obviously on a soundstage and it looks like you're watching a play that's being taped by a home video camera. I, I say that with love, but you, it, that's what it looks like. So <laughs> it does. Well, that's what I said. It looks like there are plywood backdrops and yeah. Yeah. they're acting in front of them. And I say this as somebody who has grown to actually have a great deal of affection for the adaptations. No, totally. Me too. But they're at this garden party where they meet the ambassador and he mentions this perplexing issue and then he comes to them subsequently. So it's a much bigger way to open. And Tuppence is wearing just the most outlandish hat. It is enormous. It is maybe the biggest hat I've ever seen on a person. It's just insane. So again, they really (laughs) brought it with the costumes in this series. And I do appreciate that. Even though... There's not that much to this story as a puzzle mystery. There's a lot of incident and action. So there wasn't Mm -hmm. that much invention that they had to do. The one thing that they did that I just want to point out, because it was curiously executed, is that Tuppence, in the middle of all of this, goes off to lunch with her lady friends who she got to know when she, when she was volunteering in the war, in the Great War. And they're all talking about how bored they are. And they say, oh, well, Tuppence, you have it better because, you know, you work with your husband and you lead such exciting life. And she's in a little bit of a rut at this point in the episode. Her friends, though, are very curious. She has three friends that she does this scene with. And there is one among them who's wearing a suit and who is styled in both hair and makeup to look like a man, but is clearly a woman. It's so extreme that she almost seems to be in drag, except her voice and mannerisms are not such that she seems to be trying to pass off as a man. There's nothing made of it. It just is what it is. And it's just interesting for a series from the early 80s, adding this element to it. I just thought it was really curious. I mean, it was more extreme than Maggie Smith in Death on the Nile. This town is filled with rich old widows willing to pay for a little groveling and a body massage. Yeah. If this adaptation was in 2018, I wouldn't even mention it, but this is where the year that the series was actually made matters because that is a choice in the early 80s. Right. I mean, I suppose what we're meant to think is that Tuppence is very cosmopolitan. Yeah, Tuppence has interesting friends who lead all sorts of different lives. Because it's almost a little implied that that woman dressed more as a man and one of the other women are kind of a couple. That's a little fuzzy. I might have been reading into that. So, yeah, she's got some cool friends. I mean, certainly there have been 
piles of books written about like the Bloomsbury group who would have been contemporaries of Tuppence. You could argue in a, in a way that it's a little accurate to period. I mean, there's also the sort of phenomenon of homosexuality yeah, and pre Third Reich Berlin being more cat's uh, cabaret. Yeah. <laughs> it's cabaret. Yeah. yeah. It's just a curious choice having watched every other now every other episode within that series. These friends then join her when she goes to the beauty parlor and all of those adventurous hijinks ensue and they help out. And two of them have face masks on and are pretending to be getting these beauty treatments and the other one is as another customer. And we couldn't have done it without the help of the girl. Oh, well, it was just like the war. The war? A VAD. We were all in it together. We used to drive ambulances, that sort of thing. <laughs> Only the uniforms were different. Tuppence, dear, should you need us, we'll be outside. Come along, girls. Right. It's been such fun. Thank you. And I would have to say, and the adaptation does sort of a weird job about this, but one of the things that is lovely about young Tommy and Toppins is that they are adventurous. They're interested in other people. You could see them hanging out with an eccentric group that was diverse, that mm-hmm. had like intersectionality in it. They're a little nonchalant in a weird mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. That's what makes them sort of lovely and interesting and why Tuppence in particular is this lovely character. You know, yeah. the more that we've gone over this, I find Tuppence to be a really, really wonderful character because she's incredibly smart and she's brave and she loves her husband and she still does her own thing and is cool. <laughs> Yeah. No, I mean, Tuppence is not is kind of the ideal. I think Tuppence is Agatha Christie's dream version of herself. It's like the happiest sure. version yeah. of, of and, what and she that, could be. That's, that's sad in a lot of ways, isn't it? Yeah. Life is life, so that's why it's the dream. All the things that matter are perfect for Tuppence, and she's supremely happy. Which is a, right. a, oddly a, a good segue into that final story within this collection because of where we end right. up. So let's just talk really briefly. We are not going to summarize the thriller plot of this final story, but the man who was number 16 brings us back to this idea of some sort of Russian spy. It's why they have their jobs in the first place. Right. And we covered this way back when we started this collection that they're posing as these detectives because they know that the blunt agency is some sort of a nexus for Russian espionage and that the number Mm -hmm. 16 is going to be referenced by someone, which is a code. And we kind of get all that re-explained because at this point, I think Christy realized like, yeah, everyone's probably forgotten about that because that was 200 pages ago. And it happens. There's espionage hijinks that involve Tuppence being in a great deal of peril, including ultimately being found not under a bed, but in a bed. I don't even really yeah, understand how that's possible. Like, I wasn't quite clear on the physicality of that. <laughs> like, a l- elaborate bed, I guess. Like, is she in the box spring? Like, it's a hollow box spring or something? I, I don't know. I frankly did not quite get where she was either. Maybe somebody who has a better sense of what's going on yeah. can tell us. Yeah. It's fine. You know, this is why we chose to skip the thriller interstitial stories. Well, A, they are not adapted within the Francesca Annis James Warwick series. And B, they're not mysteries and they're so light and slight that they just didn't feel that they merited an episode. But this one is charming for two reasons. And the first is that, of course, Christie does reference another detective and novelist, 
But in this case, she is referencing herself and none other than Monsieur Hercule Poirot. Poirot. And it's delightful. It's mainly delightful because it allows Christy, through the voice of Tommy and Tuppence, to make some sick burns of poor Captain Hastings. They just savage Captain Hastings. As though as though there aren't some sick burns against Hastings in Poirot novels. I know, but this isn't even a Poirot novel. Hastings isn't even in the Poirot novels anymore at this point. And yet we have Tommy saying... Um, so Tommy says that he's going to be the great Hercule Poirot, and there's a lot of references of, of the gray cells, of course. And then Tuppence says, because she has to be Hastings, I have a feeling that this particular adventure will be called the Triumph of Hastings. Never, said Tommy. It isn't done. Once the idiot friend, always the idiot friend. <laughs> <laughs> I actually did not appreciate that the only Poirot novel that is directly referenced is The Big Four. There's a whole sort of rundown. Well, it's not, of what, that's not your favorite? No, not so much. There's a whole rundown of what happens at the end of the big four. And then they even say, Tommy says, this number 16 person, he is the four squared. In other words, he is now the number 16. You comprehend, my friend? Tommy trying to do Poirot is also just really sad because we know Poirot and Tommy Beresford. You are no Hercule Poirot. I did also appreciate that Christy manages to reference both Holmes and Poirot because Tuppence is talking about how this is going to be their last case and that when they have laid the super spy by the heels, the great detectives intend to retire and take to beekeeping or vegetable marrow growing. And beekeeping, of course, is what Holmes did and vegetable marrow growing is what Poirot did unsuccessfully in the murder of Roger Ackroyd. But Tuppence has been drugged, by the way. She was severely drugged. Tommy basically thought she was dead. And again, let's reiterate, shoved under some bed thing. (laughs) Again, shoved in a bed, like in the mattress or box spring of a bed in it. They looked under it and didn't find her and then Tommy ultimately realized like oh she's in the bed well okay so poor Toppins who again let me reiterate better than Tommy in so many ways but Tommy has found her so that is major points to Tommy and they decide that they're going to go into retirement and then she has to tell him the secret that she's been keeping from him and it's that she's pregnant I'm talking, said Tuppence, of our baby, capitalized. Wives don't whisper nowadays. They shout, then all caps, our baby. Tommy, isn't everything marvelous? And that, my friends, is the end of the Partners in Crime collection. Truly living the dream, our Tommy and Tuppence. If you count the dream being like kidnapped, (laughs) drugged, held under a mattress, Stalked by a foreign operative. Could you get Tuppence over to an OBGYN stat to make sure that having just been drugged and bodily shoved into Listen, a bed- I mean, I might be I may be basing this solely on the partners in crime adaptation episodes, but you know that Tuppence was downing some martinis that entire pregnancy <laughs> too. It's fine. It was it's the twenties. Alcohol worked differently then. That's what we've all learned. <laughs> yep. All of our parents survived because cigarettes and alcohol worked differently yep. then. Through Mad Men, you know, through the 60s. Through it was Mad around Men. the 70s and 80s when it started not being totally harmless. That's when it became <laughs> especially toxic. <laughs> and that is where we leave our young Tommy and Tuppence embarking on an even greater adventure, that being the adventure of parenthood. And the next time we see them, 
they are going to be in a different phase of their lives, but let's just leave it at that. Yeah, and we'll see them. We'll see them in a few months. We'll see them in a few months, and I and I'm excited about that. I I like how we managed to space out this collection because they are steadfast companions to each other, but also to their readers. As much as we make fun of Tommy, or at least as much as I make fun of Tommy, I actually kind of love their relationship. I do too, and and as cloying and awful as Tuppence's name is. It's just the worst. I agree with you that she is a great character and I have a lot more genuine affection for them having read Partners in Crime as closely as we have than I did before. So that is the Ambassador's Boots and the Partners in Crime collection overall. Join us next week for... Another short story from the Listerdale Mystery Collection. That would be the intriguingly titled Accident. Very excited for that one. We should note that our next novel is Sad Cypress. That would be a Poirot novel. Yay! As always, we would love to hear from you. Feel free to email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame or Catherine at Brobcat. We are on Facebook. Our Facebook page is allaboutagatha, and our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. Please take a moment to rate and review us, and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.